Amen. There is a fine line between confidence and stupidity. I'm sure you've heard something like that before. Displays of big confidence in critical moments make for memorable stories. Big confidence in critical moments make for memorable stories. And one of my favorite stories I heard when I was a young boy, and it comes from baseball. And now when I first heard it, I only knew the pressure in baseball that comes with stepping up to the plate in t-ball, right? The pressure that just comes from your parents watching you play. But this story is a story of big confidence that comes in a moment of exponentially more pressure than I could ever imagine. Indeed, there were thousands of onlookers in this moment. In a stadium large enough to fit the combined populations of Middleburg Heights, Berea, and Brook Park. A critical moment. The year was 1932. The teams were the New York Yankees and the Chicago Cubs. It was game three of the World Series, and the Yankees were up two games to none. Now the series had switched from New York City to Chicago, where they played at Wrigley Field, which is still there. The moment of legend came at the top of the fifth inning with the score tied at four. Charlie Root was on the rubber for the Cubs, and the larger-than-life figure, Babe Ruth, was in the box for the Yankees. Now, the Babe had already hit a home run in the first inning, but now he got himself in a little bit of a pickle. The count was 2-2. And baseball back then wasn't quite like baseball today. There was a lot more trash talk. So the Cubs bench is screaming at the Babe, talking trash. So the count's 2-2, he steps out of the box and takes a moment to yell back at the Cubs bench. And then he takes two fingers and points to the center field fence. The very next pitch, he belted the ball over the center field fence. Responding to the newspapers following the game, the Bambino said he did in fact call his shot. The pitcher said otherwise. Why is that moment so cool? Well, it's big confidence in a big moment. And you know what? The babe delivered. I mean, could you imagine if that next pitch came and he swung and he missed, he struck out? But he would have looked foolish. And not just that, we wouldn't be talking about that moment nearly 90 years later. So, there's a fine line between confidence and stupidity. See, confidence comes when you have a good basis for trust. And you don't look foolish for that confidence when the results pan out like you expect. Right? So for Babe Ruth in this situation, the Babe knew he could hit home runs pretty much on command. And he actually did it in that moment. Now, on the other hand, for a quick example, I could be so confident that the Browns will win the Super Bowl the upcoming season. <laughs> that I could get a tattoo on my left calf of their logo, the new logo, you know, that's orangier than the old orange. And 
with their helmet underneath, I could have the words 2019 Super Bowl champs. Now, what's wrong with this? I don't have a good basis to say that this will happen. No matter how well the draft goes, the history of the Browns organization gives me no good basis of confidence that this will happen. And B, when it doesn't happen, boy, would I look foolish. So this morning we come to a passage dripping with confidence. And if you know the author, this confidence isn't that surprising. This is coming from a guy when he was just getting peach fuzz on his cheeks, told a 14-foot behemoth of a man, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. You talk about big confidence. David was used to having big confidence in critical moments. So in all of Psalm 16, we read of big confidence in all moments of life. Big confidence in the Lord. All moments of life, including death. In verse 10, David writes, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is the same confidence that marked Jesus during his earthly ministry. Continually, time and time again, Jesus said that he had to die, that he must be delivered, but he would raise again three days later. He had that confidence before that even happened. And this same confidence belongs to those who are united to Christ. So let's go ahead and turn to the 16th Psalm. If you're looking at the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find it on page 453. 453. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. 
At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. It's Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And this is one of those days when more people come to church than perhaps normal Sundays. Not good, not bad, just, it's, it's, it's just a thing. Uh, those factors mean that we usually take a break from whatever we're doing and have a special message for Easter, for Resurrection Sunday. So why on earth would I choose Psalm 16? First, if, if you're here, maybe you haven't come to church in a while, how many times have you heard from the Old Testament recently? This is inspired scripture. I think more importantly for myself, I was you know, reading of resurrection passages in the New Testament. I came across 1 Corinthians 15, maybe the mountaintop chapter about the resurrection. At the very beginning of the chapter, it says, you know, Jesus was rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That phrase, according to the scriptures, he repeats that several times. I just thought, well, according to what scriptures? Well, Psalm 16 is a psalm that's quoted by apostles over and over again. So I thought, let's examine one of the Old Testament scriptures that the apostles used to show that the resurrection didn't just happen out of the blue. So Psalm 16 is a major passage. I'm going to look at the whole thing. So if you've been around Old Oak for any amount of time, you'll know that our normal deal is expository preaching, right? So we, we sing the word, we pray the word, we uh, see the word in our ordinances, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and we preach the word. Now, expository preaching is just one of those jargon words a lot of people throw out, and then you lose the sense of what it actually means. Expository preaching is just exposing what a particular passage of the Bible says, right? Seeking to apply it to our lives, and then attempting to see that particular passage in light of the whole Bible, right? The whole Bible that has Christ at its center. So normally each week I try to distill everything around one main point so that the main point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. So today for Psalm 16, I believe the main point in light of the author's intent and in light of seeing it with the whole eyes of the whole Bible, the main point of Psalm 16 is that an unrelenting confidence in God is an all-encompassing reality, ultimately based on the person and work of Christ. You can find that printed in your bulletin. An unrelenting confidence in God is an all-encompassing reality, ultimately based on the person and work of Christ. So we're going to break down Psalm 16 into four different parts, with the thread of confidence in God running through each one. So first, the prayer of confidence in God. Secondly, the fruit of confidence in God. Third, the present of confidence in God. I'm not talking about a gift there, talking about present circumstances. And then finally, the future of confidence in God. So let's look at first, the prayer of confidence in God. The first two verses. How can we tell that David is praying here? Well, he's talking directly to God. And he makes a request. You see that request in the very first word of the psalm. Preserve. When we think about preserving, I don't know, at least for me, I think about food. It doesn't take a lot for me to think about food. But I think preserving with food. Right? If you want to preserve food, you are protecting it from spoiling. You're protecting it from going bad. So you do things 
to put it in conditions where it won't go bad, right? You, you find a Tupperware container, you find a matching lid somewhere, and you seal the air in the container and then you place it in the refrigerator. You preserve it so it doesn't go bad. David is asking God to preserve him. And familiar scenes of preserving for him would have been guards protecting their king, or maybe more relevant for him, shepherds, as David was a shepherd, protecting their sheep, preserving their sheep. So then this request for God to preserve David, it would seem to imply that David's in some kind of situation of danger. Now, some biblical scholars believe that this psalm, uh, David wrote it when he was on the run for king, from King Saul. And when he wasn't king yet, but he was kind of a fugitive from the king before him. But there's no, like other psalms, he gives timestamps of when he wrote them, right at the very beginning. That doesn't happen in Psalm 16. So maybe then this is just a general prayer. Preserve me, O God. And if that's just a general prayer, think of how that's a lesson for us. That it shouldn't take a moment of crisis for us to come to the Lord and say, preserve me. It shouldn't take a moment of crisis to do that. That should be our prayer all the time, continually. But why is David able to come to God and say, preserve me in the first place? To move beyond that first word of the psalm. You see that word for in verse one? That word for? That tiny little word, that tiny little preposition. That's one of the most important words when studying the Bible, for. He gives reasons why he's saying to God, preserve me. He's, he's able to pray to God, preserve me, because God is his refuge. Because God is his Lord. Because God is his good. For his refuge, David uses the name of God, uh, the Hebrew name El. It's the name for God's might and strength. God, the Almighty, is where David goes for protection, for safety, for shelter. So I ask you, where do you run for these things? What or who is, where is your refuge? The thing or person or habit or place you run to again and again. Where you find safety and shelter. Whatever it is. We remind, we remind ourselves, friends, from this psalm that there is no refuge like God. There is no other almighty. So don't settle for anyone or anything less. Why would you? But God is not just David's refuge. God is David's Lord. That word, Adonai. God is David's master, his ruler, his director. This time he uses the name of God, Lord. You'll see the big caps. Yahweh. The covenant God. This is the name God revealed to Moses at the burning bush when Moses asked, what is your name? He says, I am who I am. This is the God who keeps his promises. This is the God who is faithful. He is David's Lord. 
the director of his life. So David can say to God, preserve me, because he knows he is not his own. He is God's possession, and he is under God's rule. So if you ask God in some form or fashion to preserve you, then do you have that same perspective of David? Have you asked that having surrendered to the Lord, having surrendered and submitted under his rule? And could you say to the Lord that he is your Lord? How is David able to say, preserve me, O God? Well, God's his refuge. God's his Lord. But God is also David's good. David's goodness, what he has as good, is only found in God. And if you think about it, what possession, what merit of David could possibly compare to having God himself? What or who else will last forever? What else is as precious? What else is more valuable than God himself? There's no other creator. Everything else is a creation. I mean, seriously, use reason for this, friends. Reason is not your enemy. If God is God, then there is no thing as good or as great as him. Well, you use reason for this, and then you ask God to make you alive to this so that you can experience this to taste and see his goodness, his greatness, his holiness, his power, his love, his mercy, his grace. So David could say, preserve me, O God, because he knows there is nothing he has that even compares to God. So then, friends, from the very onset of this psalm, we see David's big confidence in God reflected in a prayer. God is his refuge. God is his Lord. God is his good. Guys, can we pray the same thing? Can we pray the same prayer? Do we have this same basis of confidence that David has? So reading through the eyes of the whole Bible, we see that this same basis of confidence is found also in Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean that as God is called refuge, Jesus is called Savior. As God is called Lord and Master, so is Jesus called Lord and Master. As God is called the only good and treasure, so is Jesus called our righteousness and the treasure beyond all value. So is Christ your hiding place. Our sin, the fact that we have not fully reflected God to the world, the fact that we have not fully obeyed God and lived how he has called us to live, our sin has placed us in danger of God's righteous wrath. So where will we turn? Well, God's, God provides a refuge in his son that he may bear the wrath, not for his own sin, but for our sin, the sin of those who believe in him. Is Christ your hiding place? Is Christ your Lord? If you profess to believe Jesus, then the Bible says you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify him in everything we do. Is Christ your refuge? Is Christ your Lord? Do you claim to have any good apart from Christ? Now, those who have big confidence in God, they don't just have the perspective of David here. 
That same perspective of David's picked up by Paul in the letter to the Philippians. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Is Christ that valuable to you? So see, this is the starting point for everything. David's confidence in God has a solid foundation. And friends, ours even has a more solid foundation because of Christ. Oh, it's easy to say all these things. It's easy to, to pray this kind of prayer just with our words. It's another thing to show this prayer in our lives. So we go on to the next verses. We see the fruit of confidence in God. The fruit of confidence in God. So immediately after discussing his relationship with God, David turns to his relationship to others. So even in our different human relationships, you can think about it, there's kind of a hierarchy of them. We have certain relationships that are so important that they affect kind of everything else. All of our other relationships and kind of everything else in our lives. Most obvious one, marriage. And marriage should be obvious. You know, it's, uh, I've had a couple of friends, a couple of roommates, and it was weird and kind of funny to see them before they met their wives and then to see them after they met their wives and were married, right? There have been some changes. A lot of things, how they live, how they relate to people. And it's just a small thing, but kind of profound thing, their bedrooms. Okay, I had a roommate, his bedroom, I don't know, it, I don't know how to describe it, it looked like a bedroom of a sociopath, okay? And it's just no, no bed frame, just a mattress on the floor, no dressers or any other furniture, just papers everywhere, boxes, clothes lying on the floor, and then like a 25-pound sack of rice in the corner. He's married now, and his room doesn't look like that anymore. There are certain relationships that affect everything else we do. So our relationship with God informs everything else we do. Most specifically, our relationship with God informs how we relate to people. And that's the connection David brings here. That connection's throughout all the Bible. Think about the Ten Commandments. Right? The first four of the Ten Commandments or how we relate to God, how we obey God. And the second six are how we treat others. Even Jesus himself said, you know, the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your being. And the second one's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That connection's picked up here, Psalm 16. So David begins with his relationship with God that's built on confidence. And then he shows how that relationship informs how he treats others. He looks at two groups. First group he looks at are the saints. And with all these, with either one of these groups, that means we can t test how genuine our relationship with God is by looking at how we treat other people. So how we treat the saints. The saints are those who love God. In the age of the church, the New Testament labels saints simply as those who follow Jesus. No more than that. Th those whose sins are forgiven 
and those who are covered in his righteousness. So friends, this passage, the rest of the Bible, warn us about claiming to have a relationship of confidence in God while not loving other Christians. Think about this practically. It's a, it's a warning that it's difficult to love other Christians if you don't see them often. Right? That there's a reason that the book of Hebrews says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves. And that means, that means don't stop coming to church. Now, it's not a cheap plug. It's not meant to be a drag either. I mean, you look at this passage even. Not that it's never hard, but David says the saints are his delight. The saints aren't just his duty. The saints are his delight. And it's a reminder that if we have a deep relationship with the Lord, then we will follow and we will be eager to follow the rest of the Bible's commands to, fo- to love fellow Christians. And that love displays itself in a myriad of ways. The least of which being committed to being there for them. But David doesn't only talk about the saints. He also talks about those who run after another God in verse four. And he mentions something about drink offerings and not taking their names on their lips, on his lips. I'm not a betting man, but if I was a betting man, I would bet that you probably don't use those phrases David uses in verse four every day. But think about it this way. If the saints are David's delight, then those who run after other gods are not his delight. Now, those who run after other gods are not just those of different religions. It includes in that, but it's, it's, it's more than that, right? You see, our hearts were made to worship, and we worship something. Keep your eyes open to this. Everybody lives for something. And the Bible says that on our own, we worship the creation rather than the creator. We worship temporary things rather than what's eternal. We worship things that aren't worthy of worship and do not have the same glory as God does. Things like wealth, things like pleasure, things like status, things like beauty. These are gods we run after. So just like there's no other refuge but God. Verse four, David shows us there is also nothing where our hearts find true purpose and satisfaction like God, like the God who made us. Let's put this all together. David's big confidence in God. It informs how he relates to other people. And it informs how he relates to those who run away from God. They are not his delight. Remember that Billy Joel song, Only the Good Die Young? It's a catchy song. I like that song. I like Billy Joel. He says in a line from his song, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Sinners are much more fun. Christians, as catchy as that song is, Christians don't have that attitude. They don't have that attitude. It's incompatible with who we are. Now, what this doesn't mean, this does not mean we don't love those people who run after another God, who run away from God. 
In fact, we are called to love those people. And one of the many lies people believe today is that in order to genuinely love and care and respect someone, you have to affirm all the decisions that they make. And that you, you have to believe that everything they believe is true. Friends, that's dishonest. And it's not true. Look, if you know someone who's doing something that isn't for their ultimate good, then we shouldn't affirm it. That's actually unloving if you think about it. So then our confident relationship with God shows itself in how we relate to others. Both those who love God and those who don't. It's an all-encompassing reality. We keep on going. We press forward a little bit more. And David turns from talking about how he relates to others to how his relationship with God informs how he looks at his present circumstances. This is verses five to eight. The present of confidence in God. In verses five to eight, David goes over various blessings that God has given him in the here and now. He looks at those blessings, then he can gaze at the whole picture and settle himself in a state of contentment. So you look at verses five and six, that first little grouping there. David talks about his portion, his cup, his lot. And then he talks about his lines and his inheritance. He sees that the Lord has directed and held all those things. That the Lord has been faithful in his daily necessities, his, his cup. That the Lord has been faithful in his just general circumstances, his, his lot. And the Lord has been faithful in the gifts he's given him, his inheritance. The Bible later says that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And here, David affirms that. David recognizes that. What God has given him, David says, is beautiful. But God's given David more than this. God's also given him counsel. Even to the point where it wells up in his heart at all times. That's how near to the Lord that David is. Friends, if you have this big confidence in God, then you will follow David here. You will recount the Lord's goodness to you in your past. You will recount the Lord's goodness to you in your present, and you will rest in his care. But what happens? What happens when our inheritance doesn't seem to be beautiful? When our cup of daily circumstances seems to be empty. In those situations, that's when confidence in God is all the more important because we remember the sound and solid basis for that confidence. That God is always good, though sometimes it's hidden. And that God's promises do not change Sometimes we can't see. That's what David speaks of in verse eight. He understands how much the Lord has done for him. So he resolves to seek the Lord continually. You see that pattern here? Even for one living in the Old Testament times, David doesn't live to earn God's favor. 
No, no, no. He lives because God has shown favor to him. He lives in light of grace. That's how Christians live. So having entrusted himself completely to God's care, even to the point of all his circumstances, David will not be shaken. The Lord's at his right hand. The picture of this is a child and his father, small child. Now, if danger approaches or if the child's just plain shy and he's near his dad, that child is, is going to hide behind his dad's leg. He'll bury his face into his dad's side. And the child doesn't say this clearly, but what he's thinking is, my, my dad is, is with me and he's going to protect me. And you have this kind of confidence in God to see that nothing can thwart God's control, that nothing can thwart God's care, nothing can thwart God's plan. You want proof for this? You want the ultimate reason for this? It's the gospel. It's the cross. You want ultimate proof that even the world's greatest evil cannot thwart God's plan? Is that after Jesus died, he rose from the grave. That's the ultimate proof, friends. You want ultimate confidence to be content with what you have now? Think about what, how, what God has already given us in the gospel. Friends, if God so loved us that he's given us his son to live and die in our place, then why should we doubt his goodness and care in the here and now? Consider this then. Consider this, that this settled confidence and contentment is the exact opposite attitude that the world wants from us. The exact opposite. The world doesn't want us to be content. The world wants us to grow restless about what we don't have. The world wants us to grow restless even about what we do have. To think that it won't last to think that it's not enough or that it just isn't interesting anymore. Why do you think the divorce rate is so high? Why do you think we need constant stimulation? Why do you think we need to be distracted all the time? Why do you think we need to be entertained all the time? First, because we are discontent. We get bored quickly. You see here then, the gospel is the antidote for discontent. That God's proven his love and his care. That he's given us everything that we need already at the cross and the empty tomb. So we could be content and confident in him. Even though our circumstances may change, they may fluctuate. The gospel doesn't change. And God doesn't change. That's the solid basis of big confidence in God. So David's glad. David rejoices because he is secure, not just in the here and now, but also in the future. That's the last point, the future of confidence in God. When people talk about investing, many will warn not to get caught up in flashy stocks that bounce up and down and are generally unpredictable. 
Right? While it may seem less exciting, smart investing is usually done over the long term. If there's any group that's playing the long game, it's Christians. Yes, there are, quote unquote, return on our investments in the here and now. We get to enjoy God here and now. We get to enjoy his gifts here and now. But man, what we are really waiting for is the future. We're playing the long game. We can fall into the mistake of caring only about the world that's right now. But this life is way too short for that. If eternity is what is ahead, and every person, I think, has a longing and a sense that humans are are so important, humans are made so special that eternity has to be ahead. If eternity is what is ahead, then I think we would be wise to be most driven by that reality. To place our stock in what or who will take care of us throughout all eternity. So David peers into his future He reflects in verses 10 and 11 that even in the face of death, he has big confidence in God. Again, notice David's rational line of thinking. If God's blessed David in this life, then God will bless David in the life to come. If God was a refuge for David now, then he will be a refuge for David then. But these verses, these verses here, they speak of a greater reality than David. Yes, the hope David sees in death and eternity is real, but it points to something that makes that hope more concrete. So what do I mean by that? Well, you look at how the apostles use these verses in the book of Acts. We read of it earlier. We read a portion of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit indwelled believers. After Peter quotes verses 8 to 11 of this psalm, he said, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Have you ever heard that the gospel is good news? Is what it literally means, good news? A lot of people focus on that good part. They don't focus much on that news part. And what does news involve? News involves the reporting of facts, or at least news should involve the reporting of facts. I'm talking about fake news here. Christianity as a whole is first about announcing facts that have already happened. These are not facts about what we've done, but about what God has done to rescue those who have turned against him from his judgment. There's a mystery that God can be both angry at us and love us at the same time. There's the fact of this news that God loves us. We don't forget that. That God loves us personally. There is the fact that God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus, to be our righteousness. 
to live the life God's called us to live, to obey God perfectly. There is that fact. There is the fact, the historical fact, that Jesus died on the cross. That he died on the cross not for his sins. He didn't have any. He died on the cross for our sins, friends. That God's righteous judgment for us was poured out on him. There is the fact, the historical fact, that though Jesus died, he did not see corruption. For God raised him from the dead three days later. Showing that God accepted this payment for our sins. And that Jesus defeated the power of sin and death and evil. Friends, Christians believe these facts. Christians believe this news. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what do we do about this news? Now, this isn't like the news you watch on TV or read on your phone. That kind of news doesn't call for a response. You turn the TV off, put your phone away, sort of go about your day. This news does call for a response. In light of what God has done in Christ, he demands a response from us. Here, verse 11 of Psalm 16 talks about knowing the path of life. This response here to this news is how you get on that path of life. And the first part of the response to that news is to repent, to turn, to turn around from living for ourselves, to change, to, to go from living how we've been living and to recognize that God has a claim on our lives, to repent. And the second part of that news, the response to that news is to believe, to believe that Jesus, to believe that Jesus is the son of God, to trust him alone for forgiveness and a good standing before God, to believe that he is Lord, he is the ruler, not us, to believe that he is the savior who lived and died and rose in our place. Friends, if you have not responded in this way, what better day than the day? You talk to me afterwards, talk to one of our elders, you see Dean, Bill, Don, talk to the Christian friend who brought you. We'll be around after service. Friends, this gospel, and when we come to believe the gospel, we are united to the one who lived and died and rose in our place. That means, I love this doctrine, that everything that is his is ours. That means that his future is our future. That means that like him, though we die, yet we shall live. That means because of his work for us, we get to enter into God's presence. This is what this psalm alludes to here. And Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. We get to enter into God's presence where this psalm says, is fullness of joy, our pleasures forevermore. Who in this room would deny that they want fullness of joy? Isn't that what we're all searching for? Who in this room would deny that we want pleasures forevermore? That's the presence of God. And the path is to repent and believe in Jesus. So play the long game, friends. And hold on to Christ. And as we've been saying throughout this psalm, the way we hold on to God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit with unrelenting confidence 
is an all-encompassing reality for our lives. It changes everything. And this morning, we celebrate the basis for that confidence, the basis for our hope for the future, and that's Christ risen from the grave. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you did not let your Holy One see corruption. Oh, yes, that he died. And how glorious is that? Yeah, God, we were among the mockers and the scorners. And that it was our sin, not his sin, that he bore on the cross. Oh, God, but he paid it all. And he rose again, securing that payment. Make that reality all-encompassing for us. Would that change how we live? Would that change our presence?